Bibles to um, Exodus chapter 33. This is the text we were in last Sunday evening as we really began an introduction and laid the foundation for the message tonight. We ended with the question last week, how badly do you want the presence of God in your life? And as a church, how badly do we want the presence of God in our church? We'll not take the time to go all the way back, but in Exodus 19, God had appeared in an, in an amazing way to the children of Israel. They were at Mount Sinai. God descended on the mountain, and uh, the mountain smoked like a furnace. And uh, the mountain, there was a great earthquake. There was the sound of a trumpet that got louder and louder. And the people gathered below, two million some people with Moses, heard the audible voice of God. When God spoke in Exodus chapter 20, what we refer to as the Ten Commandments, that wasn't just to Moses alone on the mountain. That was to all of those people. They heard the voice of God. We read on in a few other chapters where uh, right after that, God told Moses to take his brother Aaron, their, uh, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they alone were allowed to go up onto the sides of Mount Sinai. And there they met with God. The Bible says they saw God. They, they actually saw a similitude of God uh, seated on a throne with a, uh, the, the ground beneath him was uh, uh, like a sapphire, a brilliant blue, uh, and so forth. And the Bible says that they ate and fellowshiped with God. Aaron and uh, the others went down uh, to the bottom of the mountain, and Moses continued up and spent some 40 days on the mountain with God. These people had a relationship, and they had, an, if you will, an experience with God that we can only imagine. Uh, we've never known anything like that, and we won't understand that until we get to heaven, and we are in the physical presence of God, but they were. And yet some 40 days later, six weeks or so, the same people that heard the voice of God, some of whom were up on the mountain and saw the, the vision or the similitude of God, they're, they're building a golden calf. They're dancing around, worshiping this calf. The Bible says that they were naked. They were committing immorality. And God is on the mountain in Exodus 32 and tells Moses, said, Moses, get down. He said, your people that you brought out of Egypt, they have corrupted themselves. They've done so quickly. And God threatened that he was going to destroy all of them, start over and create a new nation from Moses. And Moses, he pleaded with God and interceded and asked God to have mercy on them. And God pulled his wrath back just a little bit because of Moses' prayer. And Moses and Joshua began their descent down from the mountain. And as they got closer, Joshua said, there's the noise of war in the camp. And Moses said, that's not the noise of those that are being overcome. That's not war. He said, that's the noise of music. That you hear. Can you imagine how wild that music must have been that it sounded like the sound of war? When Moses got down and he saw what God had described to him, Moses' anger was, 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 uh, was hot. And the Bible says he cast the tables of stone uh, down and break them in the mount. He ground up the idol, made them, uh, mixed it with the water and made them drink it and, and, and so forth. And God's anger is against his people. Moses is as mad now as God was. And... Um, uh, Exodus 33 opened with a conversation between the Lord and Moses. The Lord said unto Moses, depart, go up hence, 
thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, Unto thy seed will I give it. And I will send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite unto a land flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. They have not built a tabernacle yet. Uh, that's not going to start until uh, Exodus chapter 35. But God says, Moses, just take your people, head, head north, go to the promised land. I promised Abraham I'm going to give that land to him. It is a land that flows with milk and honey. He said, I'm going to send an angel that's going to go before you. That angel's going to drive out all of those seven nations which dwell there. But God said, I'm not going with you. He said, if I, if I get too close to those people, I'll consume them in my wrath because they've already proven themselves to be a stiff-necked people. So they're going to get the land. They're going to get milk and honey. They're going to see the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and the people in one of their few wise and lucid moments in verse number four, the Bible says when the people heard these next two words, church, evil tidings. What do you mean? What's evil? They're going to get the land of Canaan. They're, they're going to get milk and honey. God's going to drive out all the enemies before them. Um, and yet the Bible says the people heard them and they were evil tidings. What was evil about it is God said, I'll send an angel. The angel's actually going to do all the work and you just got to go live in the land. But God said, I'm not going with you. For the first time they realized they're going to get the blessings of God but they'll no longer have the God of the blessings. And there is a difference. There is a difference. And the people heard that. And uh, the Bible says they stripped off their ornaments. Uh, the ornaments would have probably been the things that they got from the Egyptians the night of the Passover. They borrowed of all of the Egyptian people uh, jewels of gold and silver and so forth. And so they had headbands and, and, and armbands, wristbands, rings, bracelets, necklaces, things that as slaves they'd never had before. They're decked out in all of the finery of Egypt. And God said, if I'm going to deal with this people at all from this point on, get rid of Egypt. Get rid of all of those things. And so these people humbled themselves and took off everything that they were so proud of. And they're just standing there before God. And God now tells Moses to do something. Verse 7, Moses took the tabernacle. We learned last week that was a tent probably where Moses went every morning and the people that needed answers from the Lord on how to handle their problems came to Moses for counsel and from morning until night, that's where he was. Well, he took that tabernacle, that tent, and pitched it without the camp on the outskirts of the camp of Israel, afar off from the camp. It wasn't like out in the parking lot. It was a long distance away. The Bible says, and they called it the tabernacle, of the congregation. This isn't the one that they're going to build later on in this, this book of the Bible. And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. So God's given these people a chance now. He said, I'll give you the land. I'll drive out your enemies, but I'm not going with you. And the people realized the land without God isn't worth having. And for that one brief window of time, they had their spiritual reality set exactly where it should have been. 
So God said, I'm going I'm to put the tabernacle out here. If you want me, if you want to seek me, if you want to know me, you come out there. According to the Bible, we only know of two people that went. There are some two, two and a half million people in the nation of Israel. The only ones that we know from the Bible that went out there were Moses and Joshua. Now, that doesn't mean that nobody else went. It's just the Bible never speaks of it. But in our text here, we find out that that is an accurate statement. Notice verse 8, it came to pass. When Moses went out under the tabernacle, that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. They, they stood at the doorway and they watched him go by. Joshua was with him. We learned that a few verses down in verse 11. None of them joined him. None of them said, hey, I want to I meet with God too. They stood in their doorway and they watched. A lot of people are very content to let the pastor meet with God. You want me to study the Bible. You want me to pray. You want me to get a hold of God as long as you don't have to. And I'm not saying that you personally here, but that's the way a lot of Christians are. Um, a lot of people want, want the pastor to hear from God, but they don't really want to hear so much themselves. So Moses went, and the people just stood there, and they watched. Verse 10, all the people saw the cloudy pillars stand at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose up and worshipped every man in his tent door. And it's fine that they're worshipping, that they've bowed their head, but they were told, if you want to seek God, you got to go without the camp. you got to go to the tabernacle. They, they, they claimed they wanted the presence of God, but when push came to shove, they really didn't want it all that much. But Moses did. Joshua did. Verse 11, the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he, that's Moses, turned again, into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. Moses and God had a conversation, and Moses went his way to do whatever it is that God told him to do, but Joshua said, I, I just need to stay here for a little longer, and he departed not out of the tabernacle. Moses and Joshua wanted something that nobody else in that entire congregation of people wanted, they wanted the presence of God. They wanted to be close to God. If you were to see my Bible and, and see this chapter tonight, you'll find that uh, there's a lot of things underlined and circled and highlighted in here uh, that, that the Lord spoke to my heart about. What was different about Joshua and Moses that nobody else in that whole group of people possessed? I wrote a couple of things down and just share them quickly with you. Number one, those who wanted the presence of God were willing to leave the crowd behind them. They were willing to leave the crowd behind them. Again, verse 8, came to pass when Moses went out unto the tabernacle that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. This tabernacle was set up outside the camp on purpose. If you wanted to meet with God, you're going to have to get away from the crowd. You, you, you were going to have to go out of your way to go where God was. Please mark this down. There will always be a crowd. There's always going to be a crowd. And if you're going to want to know God, you're going to have to decide at some point, is it going to be the crowd or is it going to be Christ? Because very seldom is it going to be both. Uh, Joseph had a crowd and, and the crowd was just his family. 
He had, a, he had uh, 10 older brothers. The Bible says they had an evil report. And, and uh, Joseph uh, had to decide, am I going to join with them? Maybe, maybe joining with my brothers and telling the jokes that they tell and laughing at, at, at the stuff they laugh at and living like they live. Maybe they'll accept me a little bit more. And Joseph, Joseph refused to do that. Joseph stayed right with God no matter what the crowd was doing. And he stood out from the crowd, and the crowd gave him a hard time. And by the way, the crowd will always give the godly a hard time, even in church. Even in youth groups and Christian schools, there's still almost always a crowd uh, that just laughs at the rules and turns up their noses at the things of God, and they're bored with the things of the Christian life. And if somebody wants to live for God and do right, usually they're going to pay a price. But Moses and Joshua and Joseph said, laugh all you want. I want to know God. Laugh all you want. I'm going to be right with God. And they walked away from the crowd. Keep your place here and turn to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. There's always a crowd. If you're going to walk with God and know God, you're going to have to decide. You're going to have to leave the crowd behind to draw close to God. Daniel chapter 1 in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom, cunning in knowledge, understanding science, such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. This is Nebuchadnezzar's first foray into the land of Judah. And the Bible says he not only took treasures out of the house of the Lord, he brought certain of the king's seed nobility, the, the, the members of the house royal, uh, their children he brought with them. Beside verse number three, would you write this number? 3,023. 3,023, that's how many people were in that group. We learned that in Jeremiah chapter 52 and verse 28, 3,023 people. And the king has a plan for them. He wants to teach them uh, the ways of the Chaldeans. He wants to use them in the governing of his massive empire. There are 3,023 of those. Verse number six, now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom, the, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, to Hananiah of Shadrach, to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. So you've got four out of 3,023. By the way, uh, that 3,023, they're all Jewish. The 3,023, they're all of the house of Judah because they're of the seed royal. They're of the house of Judah. They are family. 3,023, there's only four of them whose names that we know. Look at verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, 
nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And we know that, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego joined with him. So you got four boys. These are children. These aren't preachers. These aren't prophets. These aren't uh, adults. These are children uh, out of 3,023 people who said, the king wants us to eat unclean food. The king wants us to drink booze. The king wants us to defile ourselves as Jews by eating that which God's word is declared unclean. You understand that 3,019 of that crowd defiled themselves. 3,019, they enjoyed the party. I mean, we're not home anymore. Mom and dad aren't around us. There's nobody to tell on us. We can do what we want. Who sees that? But Daniel and his three friends said, God sees that. They stood up against 3,019 of their family members, of the crowd. They stood up against the king of the empire ruling the world, Nebuchadnezzar himself, and said, I've purposed in my heart, I'm not defiling myself. There's always going to be a crowd, but if you want to walk with God, there may and most likely will be a time in your life you're going to have to decide to leave the crowd behind. It doesn't mean you call the crowd names or you're angry, you're unkind to the crowd. You just say, I'm sorry, but that's not what I want. I want God. I want to know God. I want the fullness of God in my life. And back in Exodus chapter 33, Moses Joshua were willing to leave that crowd behind. The crowd, the crowd is the ones that cried away with this man, crucify him. The crowd was the ones that mocked the Savior. The crowd almost always does that. Somewhere along the line, if God, you want to know God, you're going to have to decide, my friends don't take precedent over God. The majority doesn't determine right and wrong. The Bible does. If I stand alone, I stand alone. By the way, it's Daniel that purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Um, he may have already known those other three boys, but I, I, I think it's a kind thing that he found out there's a few others that want to serve God too. Maybe Daniel inspired them. They were still the minority, but they had their own crowd. Wouldn't it be great if we had a crowd around here that just loved God no matter what? That's the crowd that always changes the world. It's never the majority. It's always, it's always that minority, that, 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 that smaller group, that remnant, as the Bible often refers to it, that uh, stays right with God. Moses and Joshua were, were willing to leave the crowd. I, I've, I've got a question written in my Bible by verse number eight where it says that Moses went, and we know Joshua went with him, went into the tabernacle, and the people just stood and watched. So why didn't they go? Why didn't they go? Um, the Bible doesn't give us an answer, so we just kind of kind of have to think it through. Why wouldn't someone want to be close to God? Why wouldn't someone want to really know God in those intimate ways? I, I, a, couple of, a, a couple things, it's just human nature. They already knew enough about God to know that if they're going to get close to God, some things are going to have to change about them. They'd already found that out the hard way. They thought that they could go build their idol and they could, they, they could listen to their wicked music and they could live any way they wanted and, and God was going to be okay with it and they found out that's not the way it's going to be. You and I aren't going to get close to God unless we're willing to change some things. Keep your place here. Go to 1 John chapter 3. 
I want to follow a simple train of thought tonight with you. 1 John chapter 3. We looked at this a couple weeks ago in our men's Bible study. Verse number 2, it says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. One of these days, we're going to see what Moses saw, and if you will, we're going to see more. We're going to see the Savior exactly as he is. And notice verse 3, And every man that hath this hope in him, if you're saved, and you know that one day you are going to see the Lord face to face, your sinful nature is going to be gone, uh, we're, we're going to be like him in every way, and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. It didn't say there that God would purify us. It said that we purify ourselves. If I know someday I'm going to see the Lord, that's my hope, and I'm looking forward to that day, I'm going to get rid of some things in my life that ought not be there. Because uh, it it doesn't take a a rocket scientist to know that cursing and swearing aren't pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. Amen? That, that gossip and slander dishonor the Lord. Amen? That wicked thoughts and pornography and lying and cheating and hatred and bitterness, and we could go on and on with us, that list. We already know that those things are wrong. If I, want to, if I have the hope that someday I'm going to see the Savior as he is, I'm going to be like him, and I'm looking forward to that day, I'm not waiting until then, even now. I'm, I'm realizing, God, I don't want that kind of language coming out of my mouth. God, I don't want that kind of attitude governing my actions and my, and my thought life and so forth. We purify ourselves. Keep your, uh, keeping your place again in, in uh, Exodus, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In the previous chapter, there was a, the command, Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. It says in verse 17, Saith the Lord, touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. God's promising a close, personal, family relationship. Verse 1 of chapter 7, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So I got this promise, I can be close to God. But for that to happen, I'm going to have to cleanse myself from two things, the filthiness of the flesh. And that's not talking about the fact that I was out working in the yard, my hands got dirty. It's talking about the sins of the flesh. And the spirit are those attitudes that we have, bitterness and hatred and malice and envy and all of those things. And notice again, it says, let us cleanse ourselves. Let us cleanse ourselves. You know right from wrong. I think those same people that stood there that day and watched Moses and Joshua walk by, they stayed in their tent door because they knew that if they followed, they were going to have to get clean. They were going to have to change some things, and they just didn't want that. Now, they wanted God to bless them. Uh, They wanted wanted the trappings of of all that. They wanted God to fix their marriages and and, and God to give them the the raise and God to meet their needs and, and God to make them feel better. They just didn't really want God because they knew that if they got close to God, God was going to say, 
Take off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. I wonder what it is that we're holding on to. What, what sin, what bad attitude, what bad behavior is so precious to us that we'd rather hold on to that than to have the presence of God. I read a book when I was a very, very young Christian, and it was written by a man, I believe his name was Brother Andrew. Uh, don't quote me on that. It's been 50-plus years since I read it. And he was a missionary in a part of the world that at that time, uh, when he wrote it, was called the Dutch East Indies. And he talked about as a young missionary there that uh, he was out one day and uh, one of the things you could buy in the marketplace freely there, you could buy monkeys because they ate them. I guess they're good on toast, I don't know. Uh, but uh, you, you could buy monkeys. So there was a lucrative business going out into the jungles and capturing monkeys. Well, monkeys live up in the trees. And, uh, you know, most of us aren't going to climb that well and, and jump from branch to branch that adeptly to catch a monkey. But you, they didn't have to. He said they had a very unique way uh, of catcher, catching these creatures. They would uh, go out into a clearing and the monkeys would be up in the trees and the, uh, the monkeys would be chattering, screaming at them because they're, they're disrupting things. But they're always watching what's going on. And they'd clear an area of the jungle growth. And in the middle of it, they would drive a, a stake into the ground with a chain attached to it. And at the other end of that chain would be a vessel that had a long slender neck and a wide bottom. And in that, they would put a, a pebble of some kind. Uh, they would drop it in there, and they'd sort of shake it around and so forth, make some noise. And, of course, they got the audience up in the branches watching everything, and then they just put it out, and they would leave. They'd go home for the night. They wouldn't stay and watch because the monkeys were well aware of human presence still there. And they'd come back the next day, and almost without fail, there was a monkey sitting in that clearing with his arms stuck down in that container. Um, and uh, he had come down out of the trees and, you know, in, in uh, batting the thing around, realized there's something on the inside there. All it was was a stone, a little pebble. And he reached down his paw into that and he wrapped his little fist around that pebble. But the, here's the thing. When he, was con when he uh, had the pebble in his hand and he tried to pull it out, the neck of the container was too slender and the fist would get stuck. Now, he could get out very easy. All he had to do was just let go. And a monkey's paw is very flexible and just pull it right out. I mean, that's how he got it in there. But there was something in the nature of the, the, the monkey that would just hang on to that thing. They could walk right up, and that monkey would never let go. That monkey would lose his freedom because he had his pebble in his paw. The point of the illustration that was made, and I, I again, I was a brand new Christian, uh, 14, 15 years of age, is I wonder what it is that we're holding on to in our lives that is so dear to us. That in the grand scheme of things is just a stupid pebble. Just something of this earth. What sin is it that we just love so much we're not willing to give that up? We're so addicted to gossip and all that we hear from that, and we just don't want to give up because we might miss out on something juicy. We're, 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 we're so a, a addicted to pornography. We're so addicted, and just fill in the blank. What, what is it that you and I are holding on to? Do you understand that monkey lost its freedom 
Because that pebble meant so much to heaven. I don't think the devil would like you to hear this, but one day we're going to go to heaven and we're going to see that we could have had the fullness of God's blessings on our lives, but our pebble was too important. Those people could have gone, but they knew. They knew if I go into the presence of God, I'm going to have to clean some things up because he always says, take off thy shoes from off thy feet for the place where thou standest is holy ground. The flip side of that is maybe they didn't want to go because they knew that if they got close to God, God was going to change them. God was going to change them. Moses was a shepherd, and he was pretty content. He had a wife. He had two sons. He was living out in the desert. It wasn't the splendors of Egypt anymore, but nobody was hunting him. Nobody wanted to kill him out there. He had a good living. He'd spent the last 40 years of his life doing that, but God had a different plan for Moses than that. A lot of people don't want to get too close to God because we've got our plan. We already know what we want to do. We already know how we want to live, and we, we're afraid that if we get too close to God that God might change us a little bit. Go back to Exodus chapter 33. These, these two men... Joshua and Moses, they were willing to leave the crowd. The second thing I noticed about them is they were willing to be shown the way of God. Verse number 12, the Lord, Moses said unto the Lord, See thou sayest unto me, bring up this people. Thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. God said, I'm going to send an angel. And Moses had no idea who that was. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name. Thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way that I may know thee, that I might find grace in thy sight. What Moses is saying there is, you and I know each other. I've had a relationship with you. I want a better one. I want a closer one. I know your name and, and, and you've shown me uh, favor and grace in your sight. I want more of that. So he prefaces all of that saying, show me now thy way that I may know thee. We are taught in the Bible in the book of Proverbs, not once but twice, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. We all have an idea how things ought to be, but if it's contrary to the word of God, it's the wrong way. It might not be a sinful way. We may have a way already figured out of how we're going to spend our lives and what we're going to do with our lives. And it might be noble and it might be fine. But the question is, is that what God wants? Is that what God wants? And Moses just says, Lord, show me your way. Proverbs chapter 3 says, In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. One of the most phenomenal books of our Bible is the book of Psalms. And to me, one of the most outstanding chapters is the 119th Psalm. We won't look at every verse, but the word way or ways is used over and over again to describe. It's a description of the word of God. Look at verse number um, one. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies that seek him with the whole heart, they also do no iniquity, they walk in his ways. Look at verse 5, David prays, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. 
Look at verse 15. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I'm not going to turn up my nose at the ways of God just because that's not what I want. Well, I watch, and I know I, I'm sure I've done it in my life. Uh, we, we bristle sometimes as we see something from the Bible. We start clenching our jaw and, and we, we start getting a little bit nervous and antsy because what we're reading or what we're hearing taught or preached is running contrary to what we want to do, the, what we think it ought to be, but it's in the word of God. David said, I, I don't want to be like that. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep his statutes. Look at verse 26. David said, I have declared my ways, and thou hurtest me. We've all said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. This is the plan. He said, and I realize God heard me. And so David just simply says, Lord, teach me thy statutes. It's not, it's not about my way anymore. Make me to understand the way of thy precepts. So shall I talk of thy wondrous works. Look at verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Look, if you would, to verse 59. I thought on my ways and turned my feet into thy testimonies. I thought on my ways. I, I was going down this path. I, I thought it was okay. It, 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 I didn't see anything wrong with it, but I stopped and I thought about it and I realized my way wasn't God's way. My direction wasn't God's direction. And he said, and I turned my feet under thy testimonies. You've heard, heard me share that when I was in high school, I had a plan for my life. And by the way, I don't think there's anything wrong with making some plans. I did not know at that time as a new Christian to include God in those plans. I didn't understand that God had a will or a plan, a purpose for my life. All of my life, I enjoyed writing. And as I went through junior high and high school, uh, I got more involved in that. I took a lot of courses on that. Um, and and I, I was good at it. I was good at it. And that's not an arrogant statement. It just was. I, I won every essay contest, writing contest that I ever entered uh, when I was in high school. I won state awards for it. Uh, I was offered a scholarship to the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, and my goal was to major in journalism. That's what I wanted to do. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. Um, I wanted to do that. I was going to minor in archaeology, and, and I really, my life's goal was to go to the Middle East uh, and poke around ancient cultures and stuff like that and, and, and write for maybe a major uh, news organization. A couple weeks ago, uh, I got my uh, Botox injections for migraines. Obviously, it did not change my looks at all. Um, but the young uh, technician that was administering to them, uh, them to me uh, was from Israel. And uh, we got to talking, and he asked me if I had, was ever there, and, and we, we talked a little bit about that. That was my dream. But at the age of 16, I went to a youth conference, and I heard this lengthy sermon entitled The Generation to Come. And I sat there, and the, our youth group was in the back row. We'd gotten there a tad late. There were a couple thousand teenagers there. And that night, for the first time in my young Christian life, I knew what it was to hear the voice of God. Not an audible voice, not a light shining from heaven, but his spirit bearing witness with my spirit. And that is the night that God called me to preach. Um, I, I knew it as sure as I'm standing here that it was the voice of God speaking to me. But I already had a plan. I had a scholarship. 
I didn't know much about Bible college. Our, our church had a lot of kids at, at Bible college, uh, but my scholarship was not for uh, one of those Christian schools. I, I didn't know much about it, but it wasn't what I wanted. I, I did not like being in front of people. I was shy and introverted. You don't know how much even today, decades later, I still don't like being in front of people. It is not my thing. But I knew what God was telling me to do, and I wrestled with God for the longest time, longest invitation ever, longest invitation ever. And I had to come to the place by the end of that service, I thought on my ways, Lord, this is what I want to do. This is the direction I want to go. And that night I turned my feet unto thy testimonies. Everything that has followed in my life from the age of 16 until the age of 66 is because I did what David said in verse 59. Show me thy ways, Moses said. I, I, I want to know your ways. I, I know how everybody else wants me to live. I know how I think it ought to be. Lord, show me thy ways. And see, that's where we put another roadblock up because we, we, we don't want to give in to God. But I'm, I'm just going to tell you, looking back, I can't imagine my life any other way. I, I would have never met Trina if it had not been that I turned my ways to his testimony. Without Trina, I wouldn't have had Tim and Sarah and Anna and 11 of the most amazing grandchildren. With, with, without uh, that decision that night at the age of 16, uh, I'd have never been, been in Palmyra, New York. I'd have never seen a church born in Jeanette. I'd have never gotten to be here and to meet all of you and to serve the Lord with all of you. And on and on that list goes. But at some point in every one of our lives, we're going to have to say, Lord, it's not going to be my way anymore. It's going to be your way. How badly do we want the presence of God? I wonder how many of us are holding on to something as, as foolish and as useless as a pebble like that senseless monkey in a jungle. Maybe it's some sin, some bad habit. Maybe it's your crowd, your group of friends. You're going to hold on to that thinking that I'm going to be free. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to have my, my, and you're going to miss out on all that God has for you because that's more important to you than God. Moses and Joshua said, we're going to let go. We're going to leave the crowd behind. And while Moses is there in the presence of God, he said, Lord, show me thy ways. We're going to stop there tonight, probably one more installment on this message. How badly do you want the presence of God? In a crowd such as this on a Sunday night, undoubtedly, if I were to ask the question, if you died today, do you know for sure you go to heaven? Almost all of our hands would go up. I'd be surprised if they did not. We would all claim that we're saved. But the question is, you're saved, but is that all you are? Think about that for a moment. Is that all you are? You're just going to go to heaven someday. Or do you have a real walk with God? Do you have the presence of God resting upon your life? Or is it just, I'm on my way to heaven and I do what I have to do. Yeah, I want God's blessing. I want God to give me a good marriage. I want God to fix my kids. I want God to, to, to give me a, a better job or whatever. And we want the blessing of God. But we don't want to change. I know people that, that I, I've, Chris people that 
to be Christians that I've known for 10, 15, 20, 30 years that are the same today than they, as they were the day that I met him. Nothing's changed. And I, I, I take a step back and say, I wonder if that's the way I am. Am I changing? Or am I holding on to something that I think is more important than God? How badly do you want the presence of God? Can we bow our heads for a word of prayer? Thank you for listening.